Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root or of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who brought his birthright for a single who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears may god bless the reading of his word now minister pat will come up to preach about hold fast part 5 Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, oh Lord, we ask that you would open our minds, you would soften our hearts, let us hear the message that you have prepared for us. God, would you give us the courage to face this very difficult passage that we might see you throughout it. Amen. Good morning, Crossbridge. Today, we continue our sermon series on Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews is a sobering letter written to an audience under pressure. The unattributed author writes the pain of the pain and stress of Christian living and the endurance that it takes to finish well. This may be scripture that few of us find comfortable or easy to comprehend or accept. Hebrews was directed to a community of Christians, some of whom were falling away, had abandoned or renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. 
We are in the part of Hebrews, chapters 10 through 12, that focus on faith. In chapter 11, the author gives us examples of faith with many models of faith. But as commendable as these models of faith were, twice the author of Hebrews explained, chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And again, at the end of chapter 11, verses 39 to 40, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not, they should not be made perfect. So, what is that something better? Who is, apart from us, they should not be made perfect? The what is the better model of faith to follow. The who is the one in whom we are to put our faith. Both the what and the who are identified in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, as Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is not a pithy chapter about looking on the bright side or turning that frown upside down or even about God bringing beauty out of ashes. There are no platitudes. This is a solemn statement about God's benevolent sovereignty over both the good and the evil that happens to his people. Here is a question for you. Can you accept the suffering that may be a part of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for you? Can you lean into that pain in your life and be trained by it? That's exactly what we have read in verse 11. Can you accept hurt for the sake of good and peace and holiness and righteousness and life? Or will you simply gloss over this chapter? Or will you raise a fist in defiance to God saying, justify this misery I feel? Will you follow along with me as I lead us through our text? This is what I have planned for us. First, we will find ways to finish well with Jesus as the focus of faith. We will notice pain and its function for training and discipline. We will see how deepening our faith through suffering leads to holiness. See, God's discipline enables us to follow Jesus, to push through the pain, and to finish well. Chapter 12 begins with the word, therefore. It is the word that points to what has been said, referring to those faithful individuals in the hall of faith. Therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, dot, dot, dot. And then he goes on to exhort us to act on the faith of those individuals. The author refers to them as the great cloud of witnesses. This is an amazing title, is it not? But some people have misunderstood this term, cloud of witnesses, as referring to people who are witnessing our lives. Well, that's the opposite of what is meant here. We see their lives. It's as if they're sitting in a trial court, offering testimony of how to live that life of faith. Next, the author characterizes the life of faith using the metaphor of a race. It is not a short race. Endurance is required. We wouldn't be wrong to imagine 
the race as a marathon. How many of you have run a marathon? Show of hands, anyone? All right, well, I certainly respect those who have run, but I am duly impressed by those who finish. Marathons are hard, are they not? Long distance running requires perseverance of will. It requires endurance of the body, of strength, and of stamina. But let's not forget the resilience and flexibility to mitigate injury and to recover quickly from setbacks, because we know that everyone who trains long distance has setbacks. So in these ways, you see that the similarities between a physical endurance race like a marathon and the race that we run as Christians, if you are in Christ today, you're in that race. Staying in and finishing the race are equally important. Part one, God's discipline enables me to follow Jesus. Today marks the fifth time that we have preached hold fast. This is a recurring and a very important theme in Hebrews. We illustrated the priority and importance of holding on through related but different ways. Just check out this list. Ways we hold fast to God and Christian faith. By trusting in the better Redeemer, Hebrews 3. By seeking God's mercy and grace, Hebrews 4. By seeking salvation through the Son, Hebrews 7. By renewing hope in Christ's salvation, chapter 10. And here, by training in righteousness by God's discipline. The author of Hebrews provides us keys, keys for finishing well. The first key comes in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight. Those with an NIV will see this translated as, let us throw off everything that hinders. In this case, the ESV renders a, a translation that is closer to the Greek, which in this phrase refers to something heavy. In other words, take whatever is heavy in your life or is weighing you down and get rid of it. Lay it aside because it will prevent you from running well and finishing the race. You may have seen someone at the gym or a neighbor while they are out running. They sometimes run with a dumbbell or they'll put ankle weights just for that little extra workout. A second key for finishing well is getting rid of the sin that clings so closely. Clearly, these are harmful burdens. The NIV translates the Greek as the sin that so easily entangles. The New King James Version is even more poignant. The sin which so easily ensnares us. What is something which clings so closely? It's a sin that clings. The author warns you. Because it clings, it will be very difficult to get rid of. So what does it mean? Do we have a modern equivalent? We call it an addiction. Addictions like a python or a boa constrictor grabs hold and wraps around and gets tighter and tighter until you suffocate and until the addict dies. Of course, it's best to prevent sin from even taking hold in the first place. But what if you find yourself losing control? If you find yourself stuck, please realize there is hope. Life-changing help is available. If you're ensnared and stuck in sin that clings, reach out. 
Your pastors are here for you. We will help you take your first steps towards sobriety and freedom. The author shares his third key for finishing well. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do these words, let us run with endurance, make you feel? What images come to mind? So my thoughts go back to high school, my time with the swim team, and on tennis. You see, I had explosive strength and speed, but I had no endurance. Because I lacked this particular physical endurance, I became anxious about all forms of endurance, including spiritual endurance. And so, how was your spiritual endurance? You might be asking, well, what is that? Well, this is how Apostle Paul describes it in terms of running. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24, 26, and 27. To the church at Corinth, he exhorts, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I find I, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says that, says, run that you may obtain the prize. He says, competitors discipline themselves and exercise self-control. When I encountered this passage as a youth, there were two words that triggered me. Can you guess what they are? Discipline and self-control. Now, why did these words trigger me? Throughout my teen years, much of my young adult life, I wanted to succeed in everything that I did. Uh, Yeah, I know, that's silly. But I assumed that nothing was worth doing unless it was done well. And I realized that self-control and discipline were essential traits for such success. But I became frustrated, sometimes angry, and other times depressed. Not because I didn't have success, but because my success did not arise from self-control and discipline. I got by on raw talent for a really long time. Can you relate? The problem is that undeveloped talent can only take you so far. It can get you your first job. It can get you admission into an elite prep school or win the heart of your significant other. Do you agree? Have you found this to be true? Any, as professionals, we are told that continuing education is essential for advancement and career satisfaction. As students, we are told that a carefully balanced schedule of academics, athletics, and activities is predictive of a successful life. As couples, we are told that steady tending to one another's needs is essential for a satisfying marriage. Do you believe this? Well, such counsel is confirmed by the retiree, by the college graduate, by the grandparents, people we know. But almost without exception, these traits are not developed until that professional runs into that invisible wall. Or that student gets his first F or fails a course. Or the spouse brings up 
topic of divorce. You see, because hindsight is 2020, we realize the importance of developing character traits. In these cases, self-control and discipline are indispensable. But regardless of what life stage you are in, the challenge is the same. How do you go from belief to character? It's through dedication and practice. You develop skills progressively in terms of self-awareness and competency. You see, there's this model, the conscious competence learning model. It's one way to understand this progressive development. So you see, in the end, we are all striving for our performance to feel natural, to be effortless and satisfying in our chosen fields and in life. Now, we know it takes a lot of work to develop self-control and discipline. We've known many who have tried, many who have stumbled, and a few even who have failed. But we Christians have a hidden superpower. It is none other than the Holy Spirit of God, the co-equal, the co-eternal, the co-powerful third person of God. When you are saved, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. He lives in you, literally indwelling you. And he brings with him spiritual gifts, wisdom, and grace of God to bear fruit. Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 23, that the fruit of the Spirit results in self-control. So remember that is what you need to run the race, is available through God's Spirit. You're going to need it. And that's the point and the promise. Putting off the old life and self, laying aside every burden, casting off addictions, all require discipline and self-control. And even if we have struggled in the past, we have a present in which the Holy Spirit is working for our future. God's Spirit leads us. He strengthens us. He enables us to live and work according to His will. Moreover, because it is God's will that we run the race and finish the race, God also provides what we need to run and complete the race. This is incredibly important and a strong encouragement. God does not call us without also providing for us. And I believe this is why the author continues as he does in verse 2. Look at the first three words in verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Those of us who like to mark up our personal Bibles, go ahead and do it. Underline it, highlight it, circle it. Looking to Jesus. This is the key reminder. To stay and finish the race, you cannot look at yourself. (laughs) This should be obvious. Who can reasonably stay safe running while looking in a mirror? And just as you cannot look at yourself and run safely, you cannot look to yourself and finish the race. Why not? You see, the race God calls us to run is a spiritual race, not a road race. So you must face the inconvenient truth that apart from God, you do not have what it takes spiritually to finish a spiritual race. And if this spiritual race is like a long road race, we are wise to find a trainer who will advise us. Well, here's a checklist for you. How are you doing with your spiritual running gear? How about your spiritual diet? Your spiritual form? Your spiritual workouts? What about your spiritual routines that are leading up to the race and then following the race of your life. 
Look to Jesus. He calls, he prepares, he equips, he leads and supports you all the way to the finish line. God's plan to bless you is to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. We call this process of becoming like Christ discipleship. But there's no discipleship without discipline. And discipline is, pre- is predicated on obedience, which is sometimes painful. Celebrated pastor and author Eugene Peterson compares the necessary but unpleasant aspects of discipleship with the unpleasant and exhausting work of farming. The hard work of sowing seed in what looks like perfectly empty earth has, as every farmer knows, a time of harvest. All suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all disappointment is seed. Sow it in God, and he will finally bring, what? A crop of joy from it. The joy that Peterson refers to is the joy Jesus envisioned on the race path put before him. The author of Hebrews gives us three reasons for looking to Jesus. We're going to move through this pretty quickly. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if you didn't already know this about capital punishment via the cross, it was purposefully and exceptionally shameful. The Romans ensured that dying on the cross would be the most shameful experience possible. You see, the paintings of Christ's crucifixions did not depict the humiliating reality. Jesus was stripped bare. The Romans nailed the condemned on a cross with their knees apart. Not together, as we see in paintings. Not only was there no cloth, but there was no way for the condemned to move into a more modest posture. Exposure on the cross invited unimaginable mocking, ridicule, and shame. But the author of Hebrews explained that Jesus despised that shame for the joy that was set before him. Verse 2, the cross was not his joy. You are his joy. Because of his atoning sacrifice on the cross, Jesus knew that his Father would be justified in adopting you as his children. Jesus would look on you not as kingdom subjects, but as royal siblings. And he would host and enjoy this family forever. This was a joy that was set before Jesus. So here are the three reasons you must look to Jesus if you are to run and finish the spiritual race before you. Reason one, Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. In this instance, I like the New King James Version that refers to Jesus as our author and finisher. I prefer the word finisher because it's used much the same way we use the word closer. So whether you're on a baseball diamond or you're on the sales floor of a car dealership or in a corporate boardroom, the closer is responsible for drawing the hard work to its intended end or goal. Not only is Jesus the finisher of our faith, he is also the author and perfecter. He's the beginner and ender. 
And by the way, because Jesus continually offers intercession on our behalf, he's also the provider and sustainer of our faith. Running the race and finishing well depends completely on following Jesus Christ. He works in and through us. Simply trust him to do the work. Look at him. Put your faith in him. Remember that the models of faith in chapter 11 points to Jesus as the chief model of faith and the better redeemer. Reason two, Jesus endured the cross. When stressed about your eternal spiritual security, seek assurance by reflecting on this biblical truth. You are not limited to your own resources. When you see Christ in me and I see Christ in you, we are reminded of the indwelling God who loves, leads, and provides for every need. Reason three, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Jesus because he has completed his atoning sacrifices and is now seated in a position of honor and strength. In Jesus, we have the same power, different in degree, of course, but that same power that Jesus used to defeat death. I can understand why some of you may feel skeptical, especially if you look at your present circumstances and you may see a powerless, defeated life that may feel devoid of hope or meaning. I have felt that way too at times. Recently, I've renewed my practice of choosing faith over fear. Faith over fear. And facing reality with the courage that comes from a lifetime of having seen Christ at work in my life. Of course, your mileage will vary. But such practices, though varying in form, are consistent with what the author of Hebrews counsels us to do. Look to Jesus. So, in these two verses, after 11 chapters of intense buildup, the author unmasks Jesus as the better redeemer and supreme example and encouragement. God intends for his children to look to Jesus as they face the difficulties involved in living out their faith. Part two, God's discipline enables me to push through the pain. The word consider in verse 3 sets the tone for this section. By using this Greek word, which was used in calculations, the author challenged the Hebrews to take account of Jesus. They are to reckon their present hardship with those of Jesus who has endured opposition from sinners. Such an accounting elevates the value of endurance. We see the faithful are not exempt from sinful opposition in this world. Notably, the Hebrews were not expected to put up with anything that the Lord had not already done so. Instead, the Hebrews were to look to Jesus and so follow Jesus' example. We see snapshots of pain throughout this section, especially in verses 4 and 11. We empathize with this community when at the first sign of suffering, they are at risk to grow weary and lose heart. These two verbs are commonly used to describe runners who relax and collapse after they've passed the finish line. The Hebrews were still in the race. They must not become faint and collapse from weariness. Again, we see this call to persevere through hardship. Verse 5 to 6 assert that the growing weary and losing heart 
comes from forgetting the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It comes from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. In other words, what enemies do out of sinful hostility, God does out of fatherly discipline. We see the heart of God, whose plan is to establish our faith through the suffering that is common to all. See how plainly the author carefully frames the Hebrew suffering as discipline in verses 6 and 7. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Who's disciplining? It's God. And when it appears that sinners and Satan are beating us up, God remains in control. He rules over sinners and of Satan who unwittingly serve God's purpose of discipline in our lives. Moreover, God assures us that we are never treated as slaves nor as enemies. We are treated as his beloved children. Does the author's explanation here does it sufficiently settle the matter in your mind? When suffering comes, will you know that it is for discipline and not for punishment? God may not tell you why it is your turn or why it's happening now. He may not tell you why there is this much pain nor why it's taking so long. But God has told you what you need to know. It is the love of an all-wise father to a child. Will you trust me? But God tells us more in verses 10 to 11. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Three key phrases, our good, his holiness, and his peaceful fruit of righteousness. All of this attests to God's goodness. In my opinion, the author's question in verse 9 settles the matter. Shall we be subject to the Father's, Father of of this, excuse me, should we sub, be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? Or will we rebel against the Father of Spirits and die? Will we trust God, Crossbridge? If yes, we can accept discipline as love from the sovereign and caring Father. By God's discipline, we will not grow weary and lose heart, but we will stay in the race and we will finish well. Part three. God's discipline enables me to finish well. The therefore in verse 12 begins the final section of our text and folds into my conclusion. I present to you five exhortations. The author gives us these five commands that enables us to finish well. All of these are rooted in something God is already doing for us and in us. We are to do these things by faith. That is, with the assurance that God is for us and is working for those who trust Him. 
Therefore, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Verse 13, therefore, make straight paths for your feet. Don't wander off track in the Christian life. But in connection with verse 1, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 14, therefore, strive for peace. That is, pursue the holiness that God is establishing in you by His discipline. Therefore, verse 15, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Don't let the root of bitterness spring up and defile. God's grace is at work in you through discipline. Don't miss it. Finally, verse 16, therefore, don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, and after that he found no chance to repent. Don't trade the pain of God's discipline for the delights of the world. Now, why are we given all these commands? The answer is that God knows we need help to run the race and to finish it. This is why we have Jesus as the focus of our faith. Recall in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is a race to be run, and there are sins to unload and addictions to shed. The danger the Hebrews are facing are mentioned in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. They were growing weary and losing heart. Why? Because life is hard. There's persecution. There's hostility. There's sickness. That's where verses 11, uh, 3 to 11 fit in. God wants us to understand the reason life is hard. Why hostility? Why atrocities against God's people? Why sickness? Why won't God just simply fix it? Without verses 3 to 11, I'm afraid that weariness and discouragement would simply overwhelm us. You see, the key to finishing well comes down to knowing that the God behind our suffering. Trust and surrender leads to peace and joy. Let me say that to you one more time. Trust and surrender leads to peace and joy. Don't you want that? This is the key to running and finishing the race of holy Christian living. May God give us deep, unshakable faith so that we run and not grow weary. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word which is wisdom for those of us who heed it. We thank you for your love that enables us to trust, trust you where you lead us. Thank you for the grace, for the courage to face hardship with hope, for we want to stay in the race and finish the race well. Amen.